Bible in the News. This week we are going to consider why the hope of Israel is central to our focus. This presentation was given Saturday night to the Cambridge Ecclesia in Ontario. Well, brothers and sisters and young people, this is uh, sort of an interesting topic that we have ahead of us tonight, the hope of Israel. And what we hope to really discuss a little bit is why. Why is it that the Christadelphians have such an interest in the hope of Israel? What is the, the reason behind this? And really, it goes all the way back to the beginning, because this is the situation that kind of arose when a young man was studying his Bible, and he came across this passage in Romans, and it's Romans chapter 8 and verse 24. And he read there that we are saved by hope, or that's at least what the King James Version says. But when he studied it a little bit further and, and looked into the original, he realized that there was a definite article in the Greek, and that is that we are saved by the hope. But hope that is seen is not hope, for what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? And so this young man was looking at this, and he found this very curious as to why this definite article was there. All the churches knew about hope. There was the hope of going to heaven, and that's what every Christian had. But this was so definitive, and so he started to investigate and say, what exactly is all this about? And as he dug into this, he realized that the Apostle Paul had actually spoken about this. And uh, we read in Acts chapter 28, verse 20, where Paul says that, For this cause, therefore, I have called for you to see you and to speak with you, because that for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. So this investigation would then bring him further to understand that the hope was actually something that was called by Paul the hope of Israel. And so when he discovered that, the, the congregation that he was with at the time, they were called Campbellites, and um, he was with uh, this individual here, uh, Alexander Campbell, and, and John Thomas was his name, and he wrote, and he sort of said, look, he said, there's, there's an issue here. He says, let the reader examine into the matter, and he will find that the hope of the Catholic, the Protestant, the Mohammedan, the pagan communities in the 19th century is the same as the hope of the heathens of Greece and Rome. Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Methodists, Universalists, Baptists, etc., all teach it as the one hope of their calling, the translation of their immortalities at death from earth to heaven on angels' wings is believed by the people and preached by the clergy and advanced by partisan editors as revealed truth of God. So this is what he read or what he wrote, sorry, at the time, when he realized, he said, look, everybody's in the same boat. It doesn't matter if you're a Muslim. It doesn't matter if you're a Catholic or a Protestant. Everybody believes that they're going to heaven. But this is not the hope of the Bible. In fact, he would go on to write a short, well, it's actually captured in a pamphlet that Brother John Carter, our little booklet Brother John Carter put together called The Faith in the Last Days. And he wrote this there. You perceive then, if a man would be saved, he must have the right kind of hope. If he hopes for things which God has not promised, he hopes for things which never exist. And therefore his hope is a mere delusion. The scriptures style God the God of hope. He is God of a true hope or a false hope. If a false one, then he is a God of no hope. But if a true one, be assured that men are saved by the hope. God will save them only by that which is true. 
So when the truth, as Brother Alan Air put it years ago in the beginning of the protest, he says the truth was hammered out on the anvil of controversy. And this is what happened for this young brother and basically the community he was in who eventually gave him the toss because he wasn't teaching things that were in accordance with what they believed the hope was. They believed in going to heaven and he believed that it was something completely different. And so he came to an understanding of this and he tried to basically explain this to people. He says, look, those who believe the hope of Israel and obey the king of Israel, they are styled kings and priests unto God in the New Testament because they are chosen on the principle of an obedient faith to act as kings and priests in the Messiah's coming of the king or kingdom of the coming age. Do you know, saith Paul, that the saints shall judge the world, shall reign as kings and officiate as priests in the new imperial monarchy to be founded in the everlasting kingdom of Jesus Christ? So when he was studying this, he said, look, this is what the Bible teaches. The kingdom of God is going to be on earth, and, and this is this hope of Israel that Paul was so excited about. And so he realized that, you know, in a nutshell, the hope of Israel is actually the gospel of the kingdom. He says the glad tidings or the gospel of the glorious kingdom must be preached in, in his name, for he is the hereditary and rightful sovereign thereof. Jesus was the Messiah, the Mashiach, the anointed king as king of Israel. So he says the hope of Israel then is the hope of the gospel which was preached by the apostles in the word of truth. In this, thy kingdom of, or the kingdom of God is announced, a kingdom to be established in the Holy Land under the sovereignty of Jesus Christ when the times appointed for the continuance existing human government shall, be, shall have run out. The kingdom, this kingdom, is to absorb all other dominions and to exist as a new dispensation for a thousand years. And so it was that he would go on to pen uh, the book called Elpis Israel, which is the hope of Israel. And in writing that, he, he says in this book, who can be so dim of vision as to not perceive that the subject matter of the hope of Israel is the kingdom of God? And observe that giving his thoughts of the national hope, the apostles' persuasion turned upon things concerning Jesus. The kingdom of God and Jesus were the subjects of Paul's testimony when he preached the hope of Israel or the hope of the promise made of God to the fathers. So that was Brother Thomas way at the beginning. And what he did was he, he wrote those things down and described this absolutely revolutionary idea, which wasn't really that revolutionary at all if you picked up your Bible and actually read it. And that's why the Christadelphians are so excited about uh, the kingdom of God on earth. As a community, this is what we have looked at uh, for so many years. Because what we see in the nation of Israel is the gospel of the kingdom coming into fruition. We see that it's beginning to actually now happen upon the earth. And that is pretty exciting stuff because we're all invited to participate in it. I mean, just think of Matthew chapter 6. Right? The Lord's Prayer, verse 10. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. That's a pretty rudimentary and fundamental thing. And yet, it's missed by so many. I mean, I went to a Christian school as a little boy in Britain, and we were taught the Lord's Prayer, and we had to recite this. Yet, 99% of the people in there all believed that they were going to heaven. 
They didn't believe in a kingdom of God on earth. It was revolutionary. And it was revolutionary with Brother Thomas and the early Christadelphians as they cracked open their Bibles and they started reading this kind of thing and saying, look, that's what the Lord taught. It's what the uh, disciples went out to preach. Philip, in Acts chapter 8, verse 12, when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Entrance into the kingdom of God was predicated on baptism into the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what they were out there preaching. They were preaching there was a time coming when the kingdom of God would be established on earth. Remember, the apostles had asked the Lord Jesus Christ, in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? That was their hope, and that's what they were looking for. And that's what the, the early record has for us. Galatians chapter 3, 6, 26. It's, this is just basic Bible principles. You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. As many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek, bond or free, male or female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Well, what promise? Well, of course, it's the promise of the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. And that is the hope that we are baptized into. And Ephesians tells us that we become part then of the future society that's going to rule the world. Ephesians 2, before we come into covenant relationship with the Lord, at that time, he says, you were without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no hope. But when you come into covenant relationship, there is hope. You're no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And, the, the, and basically, he says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ by the gospel. And that's in chapter 3. So that was the point, is that being participants, being baptized into Christ, they would have the ability then to join in this future administration of the kingdom age. We don't have these passages up there, but in Peter, he says, look, we look for a new heavens and a new earth for in righteousness. And that's a, a political heaven and political earth, a new age that's going to be ruled in righteousness. And that is the hope. And the Lord added that to, or, or extended that to, I should say, the disciples. If you remember back in Matthew chapter 19, verse 27, the disciples just sort of been depressed about God, or about the Lord telling them about, you know, it's difficult for people to get into the kingdom, and especially for the rich. And he says, look, Lord, we've forsaken all, we follow you. What shall we have there for? And the Lord told him, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man is going to come and he's going to sit on the throne of his glory, he says, you also shall sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So their hope of being part of the administration of the kingdom age was predicated on Israel being in the land in order for them to be judges of. Now that's extended to you and I as well. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21, the Lord says there, To him that overcomes, I will grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I have overcome and am sat with my father in his throne. Now, he doesn't say you can sit with my father in heaven, with, in his throne. He says you can sit with me in my throne. 
And his throne, as Gabriel told Mary, was the throne of David, where basically the, the son of David was promised to sit. So this is the picture that we have of that gospel message. It's tied to the hope of Israel. And that's what gets lost so much in the world around us. The picture is even given uh, back in, in Revelation, the very back of the Bible, where in a vision he sees thrones and those who sat upon them, and judgment was given to them, and he saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. So this is those throughout the ages, as Brother Alan writes about, and the protesters and the brethren of Christ who were persecuted for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast, nor his image, nor yet received the mark of, in their foreheads or their hands. And these people have been resurrected, and they're going to live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. So tied into this is this idea of resurrection. This is the fundamental gospel. And then it goes on to say, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death shall have no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. So that's the promise that has been extended to all of us. And, I, you know, I'll just tell you a short little story. I was with my boss at work one day, and it was voting day. And he, um, he said to me, Jonathan, he says, I'll look after the shop. You can go vote. And he knew that I didn't vote. And, and he knew it because three of his kids were Christian at the time. And, um, and so he said to me, you know, you can go vote. I said, well, you know we don't vote, Ron. He said, well, yeah, I know. He says, you Christian albums have no ambition. None at all, right? You won't vote. You won't involve yourself in politics. You know, if there's a war, you're not going to go out there and fight. He says, you just absolutely have no ambition. I said, no ambition? I said, Ron, like, what is your company? Like 130 people? I run it for you? I said, like, that's chunk change. If I was mayor of Brantford, what is it, 100,000 people? Big deal. If I was premier of Ontario, 13 million, who cares? Prime Minister of Canada, 30-something million at the time. I said, that's just for the chickens. I said, my goal, my ambition is to rule the world and, and basically live forever doing it. I said, that's what I'm going to do, and take it by force. I, that, not me alone. There's a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of going to be raised from the dead, led by the Lord Jesus Christ. The time comes where the saints are going to take the kingdom, whether the world likes it or not. That's my ambition. And he's like, oh, get out of here. You know? But that's the thing, brothers and sisters and young people. This is real stuff. This is the gospel, the good news, that the wicked world in which we live, the world that oppresses people, the world that is famine because of greed of mankind, of, of terrible uh, governments that are set up and, and do horrible things, as we see sometimes for Africa, throughout the Middle East and in South America, all the unrest, all that's going to go. It's not going by social action. It's going by the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the establishment of the kingdom. This is what the apostles were out there telling everybody about. Remember Peter in Acts chapter 3, right? They were in the, the temple at the beautiful gate, and they were talking to the people that were gathered there. And Peter said to them, look, repent and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. When the time of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord... And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heavens must receive until the time of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. And that is why we're so excited about Israel today. It's our hope. Our hope is tied in with it to sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and the world at large. 
but it's the restitution of all things that is going to trigger that event. And you say, well, what is the restitution of all things? Well, first of all, of course, there has to be a kingdom requires a land. It's got to be somewhere. You can't just have, like, I can say I'm the king. King of what? I've got to have a, a domain, right? Kingdom is a king's domain. So where's that domain? That domain is the land of Israel. It requires a people to rule over. I mean, I can go to Antarctica and say I'm king of Antarctica. Well, nobody lives there. Big deal. You know, like it doesn't matter. So there has to be a people. And in Israel, that people are the Israeli people, the Jews. It needs a capital city to be ruled from. For us, it's Ottawa. For the Americans, it's Washington. For Israel, it is Jerusalem. And it needs a law. And once all those things are there, maybe not the law so much, but then the king will come. Because that's what he says, the heavens will receive him until those things are restored. And that's why Christadelphians have been excited about Bible prophecy. Because it was in Luke chapter 21, the Lord Jesus Christ kind of said, look, this is the situation. Jerusalem is going to be trodden down to the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now that's a whole other class we could talk about. But in Daniel, he tells you how long it is. He says from the going forth of the decree, and basically until Messiah the Prince is going to be a period of time, and he lays that all out. But elsewhere in Daniel, he says, look, the sanctuary is going to be trodden down for a period of 2,300 years, or days, he says. And, you know, a writer back in the time, a guy named Isaac Newton, Thomas Newton, Thomas Newton in the time, turned around about 1754, I think it was, and he said, you know, if I do the math right, Alexander the Great conquered the Medo-Persian Empire starting around 333 or 334. If I had 2,300 days, so that, that should bring us to 1967. At that point, probably expect the kingdom of God to basically be more or less here. Well, he recognized that times of the Gentiles would expire in the time period that we are currently living. And that's the way it was. Christadelphians read these passages, read other writers, and were excited about events. But when the Christadelphian community began, I mean, this is what Mark Twain had to say about Israel. So as John Thomas is discovering the truth, Mark Twain is wandering around Israel, or Palestine at the time, and he says, it is a desolate country whose soil is rich enough, but is given over wholly to weeds, a silent, mournful expanse, a desolation is here that is not even imagined. The imagination can grace with the pomp of life and action. We never saw a human being on the whole route. There was hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere. Even the olive and the cactus, those fast friends of the worthless soil, had almost deserted the, the country. So that's the way it was when Mark Twain was there. It's absolutely a desolate country. And it's interesting because Brother Thomas, at the same time, was saying, look... All of that's got to change. When he wrote Elphaz Israel, understanding the gospel and, and basically reading the prophecies that were in the Old Testament as well, writing the hope of Israel and, and rediscovering the truth, he realized that in order for the Lord to come, there had to be a population in Israel. And no doubt you've seen this before, where he wrote there is a partial and a primary restoration before the manifestation, before Jesus comes. The Jews have to go back to the land. And it's to serve as a nucleus or basis of future operations in the restoration of the rest of the tribes after he has appeared in his kingdom or in the kingdom. The pre-adventural colonization of Palestine is going to be on purely political principles. And the Jews are going to go there as colonists 
and in unbelief of the Messiah. And so he goes on, agriculturalist, trade, and the political. And that was written in, in 1848. When Mark Twain, 20 years later, would walk through the land, it was desolate. And you know what's interesting, brothers and sisters, is that Christadelphians started funding different things in Israel. This is a kibbutz in Israel, Rosh Pina, that was funded by the Christadelphians. It's the first kibbutz, well, one of the first kibbutzes. And they, they took up collections to help the Jews go back to the land because they realized very similarly to the time that Jeremiah, when, when Daniel says, I read and I understood by books that the time that Jeremiah had spoken about, that Israel was to return from Babylon. And, uh, and so he prays to God and Ezra and Nehemiah go back as we've been reading in our readings. Well, Christadelphians back at this time read it by books and understood that this was the time the Jews had to go back to the land. And in fact, that hymn we just sang was written by David Brown way back in the 1800s. And, and that verse that we just sang as well, Rejoice for, for Zion, for, for Jehovah has spoken, Jerusalem's outcast shall yet be restored. The bonds of the, uh, the fetter-bound slave will be broken, and Judah set free at the word of the Lord. So that was written in anticipation when the land was devoid of life. There was barely any Jews in it. There was a handful of them, but they would go back. So Brother David Brown penned that hymn in a very bleak time when Christadelphians looked at these things purely out of faith. They just they didn't exist, but they believed that they would. What's amazing is that, you know, as time would roll on, you'd get into the period of the, the First World War, when the British did interest themselves in Palestine for their own reasons, but the finger of God had indicated the course that they would take. And T. E. Lawrence, Thomas Lawrence, would be, as we know, Lawrence of Arabia, would basically join with this man, Faisal, king of the Arabs, or one of the leaders, and they would basically launch an uprising simultaneously with the, um, with the approach that was being made by General Allenby. And as things got closer and closer, it would be, of course, that uh, Lord Arthur Balfour, who's depicted here, would write the famous Balfour Declaration. And this is 101 years ago from November the 2nd, where we read, His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this objective. Right? This is the point, that Britain now would interest itself on behalf of the Jews. And Brother Thomas, of course, had written about this, saying that this is the way it was going to go. And Christadelphians at the time were absolutely ecstatic. This is the Christadelphian magazine. Subtitle is dedicated wholly to the hope of Israel. And this records the reaction in 1917. The declaration of the sympathy of the British government and the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jews has thrilled to the hearts of the brethren of Christ the world over. There would be few ecclesias where on the Sunday morning, following the declaration, the theme would not be joyfully enlarged upon. The whole service and prayers, hymns, and anthems be warmly touched with the emotion generated by such, and notice the words here, a vindication of our faith. The thing was done suddenly, striking one dumb, uh, for a moment, dumb with silence. We were as those who dreamed, but it was no dream. And that's what our brethren wrote at the time. It was a vindication of the faith. 
the belief that they had in the gospel, that the kingdom of God was going to be on earth, contrary to what everybody else around them said. And so it would be that, you know, only a month later, General Abdi would actually march into Jerusalem on December, in December, and uh, this would be uh, Christadelphian lectures all over the place would be crying out that this is a momentous sign of the times. It's recorded in the book of Revelation how the river Euphrates would dry up, how the Jews would go back to the land. And this is what they expected. And there is Allenby marching into Jerusalem. They were looking for the return of Christ and that restoration process. And so the Christadelphian records some of the, the feelings of the time. The strongest faith, such a sign that the latter days must be stimulating. Not a false stimulus that will die down, but an enduring impulse bred into the confirmation or bred of a confirmation of a lively hope. It is the rising to view of a landmark long looked for, and at the sight there must be a leap of the heart and a glow of exultation. The clouds are dark around us. This was World War I. But God has put this bow in the cloud to remind us of his covenant to his people. I will give you the land of Israel. And of course, we know, brothers and sisters, it would be in the next generation that there would actually be a vote that would take place in the United Nations in 1947. It was actually November the 28th, 51 years ago, where in Palestine, the Jews were anticipating this vote and the vote was going on. But the scriptures of truth were there where God had said in Isaiah 11 and verse 11, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And so that was the situation. And again, the Christadelphians were excited about this. And it would be a few, five months later, I think it was, in May 1948, when Britain would withdraw that we read the rest of the verse, he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And so it was that David Ben-Gurion would basically um, read the proclamation of the state of Israel and um, the idea of opening the gates to every uh, Jew. This is a Jewish translation. It's a little bit off. Um, But on the completion of that day, the British mandate... He basically turned around and said, and I didn't put his words in there, but by the virtue of our own historical and natural right, and based upon the United Nations General Assembly resolution, he talks about the fact that we declare the establishment of a Jewish state in Israel, which of course they would call Eretz Israel, the land or the state of Israel. And so, brothers and sisters, those were the events coming out of the dark times of the 1940s, after that that terrible world war, that, you know, that state of Israel was proclaimed. And ever since then, things have just been picking up pace. It's been getting faster and faster and faster. It's amazing, really, to see how quickly things have gone. In 1967, Israel would go in and it would take the Golan Heights, it would take the West Bank, it would take Jerusalem, And it fulfilled the words of Luke 21. Remember what the Lord said? Jerusalem would be trodden down to the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Thomas Newton said that should be around 1966, 67. And guess what? In June of 1967, it was. Joel 3 tells us, Behold, in those days and in that time, when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, then, and he goes on to describe Armageddon. 
See, Webster says it couldn't happen until 1967. It couldn't be till that point in time that Armageddon took, could take place, because it's when I bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. Well, Judah is the area of the West Bank, and Jerusalem, of course, is the city itself. And so fulfilling prophecies like Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 8, in the latter years thou shalt come into a land that's brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have always been waste. Sister Charlene and I, well, we've been there once together, and I got to go a second time. And these are the mountains of Israel, brothers and sisters. It's incredible when you go around there and you see with your own eyes what was desert described by Mark Twain when his beard was shrunk. You don't actually see a single person in this whole place. It is just overflowing. There is people all over the place. It is literally a land flowing with milk and honey. And here they are on the mountains of Israel. A land that is no longer waste. And we got to go to Jordan first. You drive around Jordan, you see a lot of land that is completely waste. And you come across the border into Israel, and it's like flowing with milk and honey. It's flowing. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, the industry that's there, the cattle industry, the agricultural industry, is leading in the entire world. This is the picture that's given to us of Israel. And those are the cities that are built right on the mountains in the hills of Jerusalem, surrounding Jerusalem throughout the West Bank. And of course, that causes a lot of consternation. And just this last year, you know, as things have been ramping up, it's amazing to see how our God works. Because you get this president that comes along. People either love him or hate him or love to hate him, one or the other. And it's just, he, he's just this bombastic individual that is an enigma. People can't figure it out. And yet it takes somebody with that kind of character to do the things that he has done. And those things involve Jerusalem, where we read in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 2, God says, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about, when they shall be in siege both against Judah and Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem's going to be the issue. It's going to be the thing. And in that day I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces. Though all the people of the earth will be gathered together against it. And that's why, brothers and sisters and young people, we get so excited about the hope of Israel. Because the hope of Israel is our hope. As we see the restitution of all things, the land recovered from the Ottoman Turks back in 1917, the nation state established in 1948, Jews coming from all over the world, from Ethiopia, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from the islands of the sea, all those things have been going on in the 1980s, coming down from Russia, by a million people have been getting to Israel. The ecclesia in Israel is a Russian-speaking ecclesia, because they've all come from Russia. And so when you look at this situation in this picture, that, that now God has set in place a series of events that will bring all nations against Jerusalem. We look at that and we say, we've got to be on the very edge. Because the land has been restored. The people have been restored. 1967, the capital city was restored. Just this last year, it's been recognized by Trump. Different people are moving their capitals there. Andrew Scheer says if he's getting in this prime minister, one of the first things he's going to do is move Canada's embassy right away to Jerusalem. 
I mean, that's going on all over the place. The new incoming prime minister of Australia, another young lion, is saying the same thing. These are the times in which we live. And why they are so exciting is because it's the Lord's doing. See, remember what the Lord Jesus Christ was told the disciples in Matthew 28, verse 18? He came to them. This is after his resurrection. He says, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And the book of Revelation was given by the Lord Jesus, or to the Lord Jesus Christ, and by him to his angel, who sent him signified uh, to, to his servant John. And he is the doer of all these things. So when you see Trump doing what he's doing, when you see 1967, you're actually seeing the work of the Lord Jesus Christ using the angels to bring the kingdom. And we're living on the absolute knife edge of that moment. And so the Lord Jesus Christ says, I have all power. And his appeal to us is, believe me. Do you remember what he says to the apostles? He says in, in um, John chapter 14, verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Now, at that point in time, it was miracles. It was miracles of healing, making lame people able to walk again, giving sight to the blind and, and hearing to the deaf. Today, brothers and sisters, it's the miracle of Israel. And the Lord says, believe me, because of what I'm doing in the world around. And young people especially, it's so easy to get lost in this world. To get sucked into its, its whatever it might be. Education, jobs, activities, whatever it is. The Lord is there saying, look, I am moving nations. Believe, trust in me. If you look at the world around you, you can see the hand of God at work. And so we do, brothers and sisters, we see the hand of God at work. And we recognize we live on the knife edge of the kingdom. Think of the words of Romans chapter 13 and verse 11, that we know the time. It's now high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. We live in a time period when the hope of Israel is going to roll very quickly into the kingdom of Israel. This will happen during our lifetimes, basically. We have that hymn we sing, Hast thou not seen, all that is needful hath been. All the pieces have come together. We're on the absolute knife edge of the kingdom. And the hope of Israel should excite us because it is the good news of the kingdom of God becoming a reality. And so the Lord gives us this invitation. Our understanding of this good news, brothers and sisters, is correct. There is going to be a kingdom on this earth. It's not going to be in heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to come very soon. All those pieces, the restitution of all things is in place. Psalm 103, I think it is, tells us that when he will build up Zion, he will appear in his glory. And that has been going on now for years. He's going to come and set up a kingdom. He's going to raise the dead. And he's going to gather the saints together. And he's going to take over the world and establish a new age where there is going to be righteousness. And you and I are invited to be a part of that day. We read, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. It's an open invitation. But God is not going to drag anybody to the kingdom kicking and screaming. If you want to go, the boss is leaving, 
and you can get on it. But we're right at the very edge. And that is as much an exhortation to me as it is to the young people, to those that are baptized or not baptized, is this is going to happen, and it's going to happen very soon. So let's prepare, brothers and sisters. Let us look up and lift up our heads because our redemption draws nigh. And that is the hope of Israel.